research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, this is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. Joining me, as always, is the co-pilot of this program, Eric Eggers, although I will add he's usually sitting by my side, but I am at a remote location today. Eric, always great to uh, to see you. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining us, as always. Um, we're going to talk today about the debt ceiling. Uh, and I know that you uh, have a uh, young, active family. You've got four children at home. So, you know, when you guys have budgetary issues at home, how, how do you resolve them? You, you went in a different way than I thought you were going to go. I thought you were like, Eric, I, you're broke. Like, I know you've got like mountains of debt. So, I mean, it's ironic we're actually going to have a guest on today because I could just wax expertly about spending more than you bring in. No, it's a, it's a challenge, uh, but it is crazy. And I, you know, I'm excited for the, for the guests that we'll talk about because this is, you know, I think this issue as much as anything else uh, underscores the main premise that, that we talk about on this program and, and that we explore at the government accountability Institute, because, you know, for anybody that thinks that, that bipartisanship in Washington, DC doesn't exist, all you need to do is look at how consistently both parties, when they're in power, spend more money than the federal government brings in, whether it's giving it to different domestic programs or giving it to the corporations that are friendly to those political parties. Uh, it is really quite stunning. It is. And I'd say that the only thing that's more rare than an honest politician in Washington, D.C. is an actual fiscal hawk. Uh, they just don't seem to exist, whoever's in power. We're, of course, talking about this because the debt ceiling uh, debate has, uh, has emerged again. Uh, they're going to have to raise the debt ceiling. This is something that uh, Congress has to do. And uh, this past Thursday, Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen notified Congress that the U.S. government had officially reached its $31.4 trillion, that's with a T, borrowing limit that had previously been authorized by Congress. She said that uh, they're going to have to take, quote unquote, extraordinary measures uh, to keep the government running. Uh, she then implied that Congress should raise the debt limit to, quote, protect the full faith and credit of the United States. Now, one of the reasons, of course, we have this debt limit debate and we always seem to go to the brink uh, is because Congress hasn't actually passed a budget since 1996. How old were you in 1996, Eric Eggers? Uh, not old enough to drive, I'm happy to say. <laughs> so. so it's been a while, right? It's been a while. We've, we've and been what floating done things instead, on the card. Yeah. <laughs> what they've done instead is uh, instead of actually passing a budget, uh, which they should be doing, uh, Congress uses omnibus bills and continuing resolutions to carry overspending from the previous year. And what this means is you don't really have a debate. You don't have the uh, Armed Services Committee actually debate the defense budget and set the defense budget. 
it's done kind of on autopilot. So, Eric, we've been through this numerous times. What's your sense of uh, the debt limit um, ceiling? Are we going to continue to extend this? Do you expect any changes? Yeah, I think this will be like the speaker debate we saw in the House not too long ago. I think you'll see it get messy. I think you'll see media reports of, oh, this is like pending calamity. Like clearly this is an embarrassment for the Republicans. The adults are not in charge. Uh, these guys are clowns. And then I think we'll end up though, and they'll, you know, they'll force some negotiations, although we actually do have a uh, word from the, the White House that says that there will not be a negotiation. Will he entertain discussions at all during meetings that may be on uh, some unrelated topic with members of Congress about debt limit negotiations, or will he just sort of say, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to, we'll discuss the topic at hand, but we won't talk about negotiating over the debt limit. So let me be clear, I don't have a, a meeting with leaders to, to read out at this time or to announce, but we've been really clear. We will not, uh, there will not be any negotiations over the debt ceiling. They, we will not do that. Again, in the past, there has been bipartisan cooperation to address the debt ceiling, and that's how it should be. It should not be used as a political football. Uh, that is not how we should be moving forward here. I love the phrase bipartisan cooperation on this issue. Basically, both parties have agreed to just continue to spend money, more money than we have as a federal government. But uh, but I do think that there are some members of the House Republicans this year. You say there's not that many fiscal hawks. Uh, the one guy that comes to mind when you use that phrase to me is Tom Coburn, the old Oklahoma senator, Dr. Tom Coburn. And I, I think we have some people that are in that spirit that do appear to be serious. And, and you hope, I mean, look, if they were effective in getting Kevin McCarthy to yield certain things when it came to committee memberships and things like the rules, maybe they'll be effective at, I don't know, maybe forcing a discussion about, should we have a budget in Congress? Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope we get back to that. You know, by the way, the White House position on this kind of re reminds me or creates in my mind this image of, you know, a family and a wife coming to her husband and saying, you know, dear, you know, we're the, the bank account's pretty low, we're overdrafted on some credit cards. And the husband's like, we're just not going to discuss this. I mean, that's basically <laughs> the position that the White House has taken. Um, and let's hope we can get back to that, because, look, the reason we have representative government is our elected officials, and this largely rests in the House of Representatives, is supposed to set spending. Um, they're supposed to get the first uh, Monday of every February. They're supposed to get a budget from a White House that says, here's what we think the budget should be. Presidents always haven't been great about doing that. Uh, and then they're supposed to go through the process of actually having our elected officials set the budget. We haven't done that since 1996. And what's strange to me, of course, is that the Biden administration politically could blame this on Congress and say, well, this is Congress's fault. They don't even want to do that, Eric. They want to simply say, um, we're not going to discuss this. Um, let's keep spending money that the way we're always going to be spending it. Joining us now is David Bonson, who is the head of the Bonson Group. They manage uh, some $4 billion in investment assets. He writes a lot on budgetary and financial issues. Uh, David, tell us what you make of this whole uh, debate that continues to unfold in Washington about the debt ceiling. Is this something that's necessary? And what are your views on uh, any reforms that might be made in this area? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Peter. I'm in a tough position because I'm a, a diehard fiscal conservative and budget hawk. I do believe very much in right-sizing government and, and not spending more than they bring in. 
And yet I don't believe that the debt ceiling debate is very likely to be the mechanism to get us there. And so I'm stuck right now with not a lot of allies on the issue because I think the attempts to pick a fight around debt ceiling are ill-gotten, and yet I'm vehemently opposed to the left's narrative about what's going on, the notion that our country would actually default on its debt, meaning miss a principal or interest payment because of this, is utterly absurd. And so I find myself not having a lot of allies in the way it's being discussed. So, so to that point, um, you know, I guess one of the things that's frustrating to people who care about federal spending in Washington is the U.S. Congress has not passed a budget, I think, since 1996 uh, when Newt Gingrich was the Speaker of the House. And it seems to me that you could argue that at least with the debt ceiling debate, it's an opportunity to actually talk about spending if they're not going to pass a budget. So isn't this kind of akin uh, to an extent that, you know, if you're, if you're sitting at home and the family uh, is facing issues or questions about spending, uh, is the debt ceiling at least a way to have that conversation? And if there's a better way to have that conversation, what would you recommend that we do instead? Well, I'm a lifetime Republican and a movement conservative, and so I hope that Republicans and conservatives won't be offended by what I'm about to say, but one of the things we could do to have a conversation would be to not grow the deficit or the national debt $4 trillion when we get our people in office. And so that's the problem is the debt ceiling debate, it, you're right, it is a conversation, but at best, that's all it could be. Because we don't have the White House, we don't have the Senate, we don't have the ability to actually go do anything other than sort of hold hostages with this right now. And that politically always blows back onto the right. The issue of, as far as the Congress not passing a budget, a profound idea I have is that Congress pass a budget. Congress do its job. Because its job is not to refuse to authorize the debt issuance for money they have already appropriated. Their job is to pass a budget. And I would add, let's get a constitutional amendment requiring them to work within a balanced budget. I'm all for that, too. Do we have the votes for it right now? Probably not. But the public could be on our side with that. But the public isn't going to be on our side as far as paying bills that have already been committed to. So we just sort of get stuck between a rock and a hard place. And ultimately, we don't end up spending less money. We've had seven debt ceiling moments uh, over the last 10 years, and none of them have resulted in less spending. Now, for anybody that thinks bipartisanship is dead in Washington, D.C., they just need to look at who continues to escalate the debt and uh, how much money gets added to it. Barack Obama added $8 trillion to it over eight years. Donald Trump added $7.8 trillion over four years. And as we've noted, Joe Biden's added $4.5 trillion to it over the last two years. And I think that's why people are generally sympathetic to the House Republicans now, right? Because this somebody needs to stand up and say, this is a problem. But do you think then their methodology which you've, I think some people would say is, is not responsible, right? If we're really threatening to just like not fund the federal government, do you think that their methodology undercuts their messaging? 
I think the methodology undercuts the messaging, and I candidly think the hypocrisy undercuts the messaging. Um, it would have required the fiscal austerity that we were advocating for in the Obama years, and the sequester was reasonably effective in bringing about some reductions of the growth of spending. The deficits did come down near the end of the Obama years, and I always got a kick out of him taking credit for that. It happened despite what he wanted, not because of what he wanted. It happened because of those Republicans in the Senate that refused to give in on some of those big increases. But unfortunately, the spending levels that we saw uh, after President Obama left office, uh, in, in many cases, not just the same party now in Congress, but the same exact people, <laughs> it makes it very difficult for us to have the moral credibility to fight hard on this issue. Well, it's the same people. And it's also the same corporations that benefit. I mean, that's what we do at the Government Accountability Institute. We kind of promote the idea that big business and big government are actually best friends, not mortal enemies. And if you look at the $1.7 trillion spending package that happened just recently, the biggest winners of that was the defense industry and big pharma. And those happen to be the industries that are the top 10 recipients of federal contracts. I mean, you you manage money. Give us, I guess, give us the charitable frame on that. Because these big, massive corporations continue to get all this money from the government, even though it increases our debt, is that what keeps the stock market humming along? And that's what keeps most people's 401ks reasonable? Or is that, is that part of the problem in your mind? No, look, the, the amount of money that the government gets uh, gives to Lockheed Martin to buy missiles is a pretty small amount of corporate profits in the grand scheme of things. There is a lot of government money going to these entities, and I vehemently uh, am opposed to a cozy relationship between big government and big business, but I also know the solution. Have a smaller government that therefore business needs less, benefits from less. Um, break down the regulatory state that allows complicated businesses to benefit from, from regulation. It becomes a subsidy. Ultimately, the, the spending side, what's, what's driving stock market returns is always profits and government revenues are a part of that, but it's quite small in the grand scheme of things. The problem is that government expenditures are such a big part of it. And the size of GDP that is now dominated by government spending has skyrocketed. And every dollar of that is coming out of the private sector where capital is more effectively allocated. That puts downward pressure on growth, downward pressure on productivity. It hurts job opportunities, wage growth, creativity, innovation, quality of life for our kids and grandkids. That story combined with excessive indebtedness. That's the legacy we're leaving to the next generation. It's what everything I'm doing in my life exists to fight against. So David, um, let me ask a, a question that I, I think you're going to answer it uh, in the affirmative, which is, is very depressing, but isn't a major part of the problem the simple fact and political reality that the vast majority of the American people don't care about the national debt. They don't care about the deficit. They don't think it affects them or it's not going to affect them. They'll, they'll, they're going to be dead in 30 years. And, and you know, as Keynes said, uh, in the long term, uh, you know, everyone's dead. Um, so isn't this a political problem in the sense that we could we blame it on the politicians in Washington? But the reality, the politicians are just reflecting the fact that the American people, they may be in favor of cuts, but they don't want their things cut and they want things cut in abstract, but they really don't want cuts in reality. If that's true, where does that leave us in, in even being able to address this issue in a minimal way? 
Yeah, so first the diagnosis, then the prescription. The diagnosis, you're 100% right about. And it's rare, Peter, for me to hear someone on the right agree that the problem with big government is a people that want big government. Um, I happen to be of a Christian faith, and I remind people all the time, 1 Samuel 16, 7, the people wanted a king. (laughs) And and this is uh, my very first book I wrote, Crisis of Responsibility, is putting the blame of big government on the people that continue to want more and more of the things the government does, and they become a substitute family, substitute social safety net, substitute source of economic opportunity. I think it's all unhealthy and speaks to poor self-government, something our founding fathers wrote about a great deal. But in terms of what we do about it, the problem is that generally it ends up being some sort of financial, fiscal emergency that gets people to take it seriously. You have something like 90% of people that say government spends too much money and like 4% of people that have something they want cut from the budget or when it comes to what we really spend money on, by the way. This is another thing I want to make clear. I'm all for people who think we spend too much on the military. I happen to not be in that camp. I know people are worried about the percentage we spend on debt service, the interest rates going higher. That's not been a huge factor because interest rates have been so low, but it could become one. But look, if people looked at the pie chart of what we spend money on, it's all entitlements. That's the whole story. It's Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, and the unfunded portion of that. That's really the story. And you can't even bring up those things in a political debate without getting totally hammered. And that's a problem with the people. So I do think we'll end up having to have some point in time at which something becomes untenable and there's a big bang moment that changes it. It wasn't unfixable. Paul Ryan had a solution. People didn't like it. There were certain parts we could turn knobs on, but the Democrats said he wanted to push grandma off a cliff. Erskine Bowles, which was a commission appointed by President Obama. There were things in it I didn't like, but they had a solution. He ripped it up and threw it away. It was his commission. So we're not serious about dealing with this problem in our country. Well, I'll tell you why we're not serious about it, because is it possible we've now reached a point where like too many people are getting too many things? And I like the analogy. I mean, you can argue we haven't gotten any better since they picked Saul at picking leaders because leaders have to make challenging decisions. And I'll just give you an example. I have four kids that go to elementary school. My kids go, you know, we live on a decent side of town. So it's a decent school. It's, you know, upper income people, they get free lunch. And that's, so, I mean, imagine people then saying you're taking food off of the table of poor kids, even though it might not be poor kids, but there might be a couple poor kids at the school. Right. And so have we gotten past the Rubicon of you? Like, are we actually past the point where we can say, okay, I'm willing now to give things up or we as a people are willing to start spending more of our own money and less taxpayer money because we actually need to for the fiscal health of the country? Well, um, I do think that uh, the general principle that people get used to it, Milton Friedman's famous line, there's nothing so uh, permanent as a temporary government program rings true. I think people get used to things, getting rid of it becomes a lot harder than not doing it. Um, And yet we are in a position where we're going to have to get rid of some popular things. Um, I do believe there needs to be some people that um, pardon the expression, but almost go on a political kamikaze mission. In other words, they know they're torpedoing their own political life and future, 
but are willing to go do hard and unpopular things as legislators. What's so ironic, though, about this conversation is a lot of the things could be popular. Cutting free lunches and things like that is difficult. But um, the Congress has been so unwilling to legislate and be a legislator for so long that I think people forgot you actually used to be popular when you compromised, when you worked out legislation, when you figured out how to get tough things done. And ultimately, I do believe we're headed to that point. But right now, Congress acts too performatively, often on both sides of the aisle, um, to get anything substantively done. And uh, the way a husband and wife get together and go through their family budget, they cut things that are popular. Maybe the one spouse liked something, the kids liked it, they make tough decisions when they need to we have to do that with government spending and, and it's going to either happen in an easier way or a harder way, but it's going to have to happen. Well, David, we know you need to run in just a minute. Let me uh, give you one final thought. and I'd love to get your reaction to it. Given what you just said, which I agree with wholeheartedly, isn't really the only way we're going to approach this is for everyone to admit even things they care about are important. The best way to tackle this is across the board cuts Uh, I mean, in other words, I'm with you. I think national defense is key. We need to be spending money on defense. But the notion that that Congress is going to pass big cuts on domestic programs and not cut defense is ridiculous, I think, politically. So isn't the ultimate solution for everybody to agree to a 5% or a 7% across the board cut? Is that really the only place that we are? Right now, I 100% agree. I don't think it ought to be that way. I think uh, ideologically, I'd rather be prioritizing things government does well that's in its sphere, its domain, like national defense, and do less of things it doesn't do well, like social safety net. But you're 100% right that politically, across the board cuts that are linear and pro rata are a far more politically palatable way of this happening. Well, and ironically, we've been talking about domestic cuts, uh, and we mentioned free lunch. You guys are actually launching a six-part series called No Free Lunch in Defense of Free Enterprise. You want to tell our listeners about that and what they can find at nofreelunchaconomics.com. Yeah, so the the series is really intended to bring back Milton Friedman's old famous line about there's no free lunch, meaning economics is all about trade-offs. Uh, there is scarcity, scarce resources, and we have to decide, do we want a private sector, individuals, families, human beings allocating the realities of scarcity in our economy, in our marketplace, or do we want a heavier hand for government? Because there's trade-offs no matter what. You don't get rid of the trade-offs by bringing in central planners. I think you make them worse. And so what the No Free Lunch video series, which is um, held at uh, the website you mentioned, at National Review's YouTube page, is just a series of interviews and, and commentaries around this subject and trying to get back to the basics of economics, uh, my heroes in the field like Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman, and appeal to these great first principles. Well, terrific, David. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate all the great work that you're doing uh, and the in- insights that you'd offered us today. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Well, that was David Bonson of the Bonson Group joining us in in what is always an important discussion and a frustrating discussion. Uh, Eric, I'm going to go home and propose uh, to my wife that we just uh, pass a debt ceiling limit um, and we can spend as much money as we want. What's your final thoughts on this topic and this very frustrating subject? 
my final thought is I actually talk about budgetary issues at home the way that Congress or the White House proposed that we talk about, which is just to ignore it and not talk about it. It's my favorite way of addressing challenging subjects. Uh, no, I do think that it's great to get David Bonson's perspective. And I think what you heard him say is that the, the way that a lot of conversations from conservative media, a lot of that Republican orthodoxy is just not sort of genuine. And so I think that that's one thing I'd encourage our listeners as you consume various conversations and you hear this conversation happen over the next several months to just be realistic about. Republicans are not the white knights on this. Like, now they may be standing on the right position now, but they've got plenty of blood on their hands, metaphorically, and the blood is just slashing any integrity fiscally from the federal government. So both parties are to blame. I think you've got this merger of big corporations. And I think what's good to hear is that it's not so much the government contracts, although the military is part of it, but it's entitlements. And until we're ready to stand up and have a conversation about entitlements, you know, Peter, I, I used to do a local radio show and, you know, just like we do with the federal government, we would have conversations about the local budget. And at any time it was a question of where are we going to raise the property tax? Inevitably, oh, well, if you're not going to raise the property tax, that means we're cutting mosquito control. And so you'd hear these stories about, oh, mosquitoes are going to get real bad, you heartless SOBs. And so they always pick like the, the most inconvenient thing to say, well, this is what you're going to cut. But we have to be honest about it. And it means you know fewer benefits, fewer services, fewer free meals for people. At the end of the day, it's a runaway train. Somebody's got to get control of it somehow. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Well, we appreciate, as always, you, the audience, listening to us. You can find The Drill Down at thedrilldown.com or other locations where podcasts uh, can be found. Uh, and we appreciate it. And we look forward to you joining us next time. Thank you.